0: Will you join me in prayer as we go before our Heavenly Father? Lord, we have sung your praises and we appreciate who you are, that you are uh, the great God, the one for whom there is nothing too difficult, and yet the one who looks to us, who tremble at your word. We know that it is not because of our own good works or anything about us that allows us to come to you. Instead, we come to you based upon Christ, that he alone gives us an audience with you, and Lord, we come to you with one simple request. We ask that you would give us a passion for your word and that you would use your word to create life. We, we sung the song, Speak, O Lord, and we pray that you would do that. Speak to us through your word and create life by your word. Raise the dead hearts. Renew that which is drifting away. Lord, we acknowledge that we are weak people and we face daily the temptation to sin. We face the temptation to to fame your holy name, to drift away from you. None of us are so solid in our faith that we uh, cannot be moved. So, Lord, we pray that by your word you would sustain us and you would renew us, you would humble us, ground us in you, the the solid rock. And do that, Lord, we pray, by giving us an insatiable desire for your word. Let us be people who cannot get enough of it. We pray that we would read your word often in our homes, uh, that we would often call it to mind. We would memorize it. We would remember it. We would think through the structure of your word. We pray that after the sermon, there would be conversations even here, not just about the weather or the week, uh, but about your word, because that is the most important thing in our lives. We pray this for other churches in the area too. We think particularly of Burtonsville Baptist Church and Pastor Justin who's there. We, We thank you for him and his commitment to your word. And we pray that you would be raising up a church that is firmly set on your word. Lord, we also pray for those who cannot be with us this morning. We think of Brenda Smith and Rachel Schultz and Betty May, people who are part of us but can't physically be here with us. We pray you would encourage them. Give them faith to continue believing that you are good and that you have good plans for them. And we pray that their hope in you and in heaven would be real and make a practical difference in their emotions and feelings. In this time, we pray this in Christ's name, Amen. So, uh, as uh, Keith said, we're beginning a new series on the book of Philippians. Now, if you haven't already done so, please open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We we're going to look at just the first two verses, though, not the entire uh, first chapter. And here's the question: the central question that we're going to really be exploring throughout the series in Philippians, and especially in this first week. the question is actually twofold. One, what does it mean when we say that Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church, right? So, So Jesus is the foundation of the church. We're going to sing that song, the church is the foundation at the end. What do we mean when we say that Jesus is the foundation of the church? What does that mean? And the related question then is, Okay, how do we experience that reality? We figure out what we mean. We need to think through how we experience Jesus Christ as the foundation of the church. What does that mean and how do we experience it? And Philippians is ideal to address that. That's because Philippians is a letter that Paul wrote to a church really largely in celebration for Christ's proper place in. In the church. You see, some of Paul's letters are more corrective. They're doing something wrong, so he writes a letter to correct what they're doing wrong. The letter to the Philippians is largely not corrective, it's largely celebratory because the, the people had the Christ largely as their proper place. So they, the letter is just sort of reflecting on that, enjoying that. And not only that, Paul writes about his own experience of Christ having the proper place in his life. So we learn some autobiographical information about Paul, and we, we see he speaks that way, and we uh, learn what it was like for him to have Christ as his foundation. So we're going to look, what does it mean that Christ is the foundation of our church and our life, and how do we experience that reality? But in order to kind of set us up for that, I want to mention, kind of contrast uh, the true reality, first by putting up a false way that Christ could be the foundation of the church. Here's a wrong way that we could think of Christ as the foundation of the church. And I want to mention this way in particular because I think it's a way that that we're all in some sense prone to go off on. And that is this. We could think of Jesus as the foundation, but as sort of a dry, dusty, dirty foundation that we don't actually appreciate and enjoy in any practical sense. So, illustrate it this way. Um, this building that we're all in right now has a foundation, right? It's laid down. If you're a builder, you can probably give us more details about that foundation. But it has a foundation, right? And we probably would all admit that without that foundation, we wouldn't be sitting here right now, right? We would fall down. We'd be in that swampy mess outside that, uh, that is there. Um, we need the foundation of the building. It's necessary, but I think we would realize that we don't actually appreciate that foundation in any practical sense, right? You don't probably um, walk in the building and think, wow, I'm just so glad this building has a foundation. You, you probably don't do that. But I bet you notice other things about the building. Maybe the lights have been changed, and I think they're brighter. Maybe you walk in and appreciate that, or you notice the centerpiece, or you, you notice it's clean, or you notice some artwork. You notice things and appreciate things, that are dependent upon the foundation, because if the foundation wasn't there, those things wouldn't be there either. But You don't really appreciate the foundation of the building. And I think in a similar way, we can not appreciate Christ as the foundation of our church and our lives. We can think of Christ as sort of a dry, dusty, dirty foundation that is necessary, right? I mean, without him, we'd all crumble. We need him, but we don't actually appreciate him in, other, in a practical way. You see, here's, here's my assumption. Just because we acknowledge that Christ is the foundation of our church and our life doesn't mean that he has the proper place in the life of the church and our lives. Well, we need more than just admitting he's the proper foundation. We need to experience him in the kind of foundation that he sets forth himself to be experienced. Now, how do we do that? Well, again, we look at Philippians because it's written to a church where where Christ is appreciated in the way he should be. So Philippians is our guide here. And this morning, we're just going to look at the first two verses, even actually mostly on the first verse. Um, It's an important book, and we're going to walk through it a little bit slowly. And we're going to see how Paul introduces himself to the church. He knows the church, but how he he greets the church. Um, It's sort of like we see here Paul reaching out and doing a handshake with the church, and whenever there's, you know, two people meet, even if it's just in a letter, uh, there's a connection, right? You know, they, there's that, hi, how you doing? I, I'm, I'm making a connection with the other person. The, the, the speaker makes a connection with the audience. What we're going to see here is that Christ is in that connection. He is experienced as the practical, personal foundation of the church, the abiding reality in the church, because in that interaction that Paul has with the church, Christ is experienced, Christ is known, Christ is part of that interaction, that transaction. Does that make sense? So we're going to see how Christ is not just this dry, dusty, dirty foundation that's the bottom of everything. No, how Christ is the personal, warm, relational foundation that must be experienced in the life of the church. And we're going to see two things in verses 1 and 2. We're going to see how uh, in everything we must submit to Christ. In everything we must submit to Christ, he is our Lord, and in everything we must submit to him. See, these are things that I think you all know anyway, but we just need to be reminded. And two, we're going to see how we receive life from him. So kind of how we orient ourselves to him and what he does to us. He is what we submit to, he is who we submit to, and we receive our life from him. We're going to see that in the first two verses. So let me read those verses again. Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Notice how often here he's talking about Christ Jesus. Okay. It's three times who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's first see here how we're called to submit to Christ from this passage. First of all, Notice the way that Paul talks about himself in Timothy. He says, servant of Christ Jesus. Now, that word servant is a much nicer, friendlier translation than I think it literally ought to be. Literally, it's the word slave. Paul is saying, slave of Christ. Slavery has had different shapes all over the world. And there have been some really sad ones and bad ones in America. Um, not all slavery necessarily fit... You know the American conception of slavery, which was really bad. But at least two there's two fundamental things about slavery that um, that were you know normal that would always be the case with slavery. One, a slave did not have freedom to do what he or she wants to do. Right. Uh, you can't choose where you'll go if you're a slave. You're entirely dependent on what your master says. Now, slaves back in Paul's day, you have to realize, did have um, more respect than the kind of slavery that we might think of from America. Um, some of the slaves were doctors. Uh, you, you could Anybody could be a slave if they fell upon hard times. But the point is, um, if you were a slave, you couldn't decide where you would go. You didn't have that freedom. Uh, If you were a slave, you were not free. And second, if you were a slave, you belonged to somebody else. Somebody else owned you. Someone else, not you, someone else had control of your life. Someone else controlled your priorities. Um, In other words, slavery means that one person is under another person's authority. Absolutely. Now, that's an offensive concept, I think. And to be honest, it's somewhat offensive to me. I'm offended by it. And it would be offensive back then as well. Most everybody didn't like this idea of slavery. And this word slave is used often in Greek literature. Almost every time it shows up, it has a negative connotation. In one play, somebody talked about how they didn't like being a slave. Not because of the work, but because it was a demeaning thing. They, They couldn't choose what to do, and they always were going to be a slave. But... This, when this word shows up in the New Testament, it, it almost always has a very positive connotation. When it shows up in Greek literature, it's a negative. When it shows up in the New Testament, it's positive. Why? Well, Because in the New Testament, it, we're slaves of Christ. You see, your experience of slavery had everything to do with who was your master. And in the New Testament, we are slaves of Christ. And because Christ is our master, something as the meaning of slavery is turned positive. It's actually good. It's a positive thing. Christ is our master. Christ is the one who said, take my yoke upon you. My, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He is that kind of master, a kind and gracious master. And not only that, we read something later in chapter 2 that we'll see in this book, more, more detail later, but at least have to point it to you now. In chapter 2, this word slavery appears again, a slave appears again, and this is where it says, Paul, this time though, is not talking about himself, he's talking about Christ. And listen to what he says, although he, this is Christ, although Christ existed in the form of God, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a, what? Slave. In in your English translations, it says servant once again, but it's this Greek word, slave. Our master, Christ, took on the role of a slave for his slaves. Isn't that amazing? He, He emptied himself, taking on the most demeaning form of slavery, even being given over to a cruel death on the cross for his slaves. Friends, does that impact your attitude about how you would then submit to Christ in everything? Does that change what you think of as being a slave to Christ when you realize that Christ became a slave, not to you, but for you? Isn't that amazing? see, Christ is not calling us to do anything that he hasn't already done for us. He's demonstrating his great love for us by emptying himself and taking on that most lowly form of slavery for us. Friends, if he has taken on the most humble, degrading, hardest form of service for us, how should we object to taking on a form of service that is lowly and humbling for him? If somebody is willing to do something absolutely humiliating for you, doesn't that make you willing to do things for them? I I remember one pastor I served under, and he had the reputation of being being willing to stoop down really low and do anything for anybody. Just a wonderful reputation. It wasn't like, oh, I'm the pastor. I'm up here, so I couldn't do it. And we'd go on mission trips. And if you wanted to find him, you just would look for the hardest, most demeaning work that needed to be done at any point in time. And he was usually the one doing it. Very, very humble. And I could say that it was very easy then to do hard things for him, to, to humble myself for him. And friends, to an infinitely greater degree, Christ has taken on the lowest position for us. He became a slave for us. How can we not then take on humble positions for him? How can we not embrace that idea of being a slave for Christ? Because of what he has done for us. And, and that's that, uh, the role that becomes so um, so humble, so undignified, turns into a great honor when we consider that we're a slave for Christ. So friends, how has God called you to be in a very low position? What has he called you to do that you might not enjoy doing, but might be humbling? Friends, consider that he's called you to do it for a reason. Consider that he will bring about a good result. Rest assured that he knows what he's doing and rest assured that he went into an even lower place for you. So friends, let that... Truth affect your mind as you consider taking on low positions for Christ. Uh, Friends, are you a slave of Christ? Do you embrace that identity? Let me give you a couple things that if you do these, it shows you're not embracing that identity. You're not embracing that identity as a slave if you complain a lot. Right? Because slaves didn't get a chance to complain. They they didn't have anything to complain about. It was their job to, to please their master. Friends, it is our job to please Christ. Nothing is off limits. There's nothing that he can't ask us to do. And we shouldn't complain about it. Now, we don't under- embrace our identity as a slave if we compare ourselves with others. You see, the thing about slaves is that there wasn't this you know, promise of equality. It wasn't that you know, they had this uh, you know, a union and could say, well, because so-and-so didn't have to do this, I don't have to do it either. No. A master could ask whatever slave he wanted to do whatever he wanted to do. So also can Christ. We don't get fair treatment. Each individual has to obey their master. There's no reason to have a spirit of entitlement. Uh, Another lastly, you don't understand and embrace your identity as a slave of Christ if your goal in life is to seek comfort and rest. Slaves didn't go around thinking about where they were going to go on their next vacation. Slaves went around thinking about how they were going to please their master. And friends, not that we shouldn't do things for rest and relaxation. No, I think that is actually part of obeying Christ. There's the Sabbath. There's rest. That's good. But our goal is not to seek rest and relaxation in and of itself. Our goal must be to please our master. So friends, embrace the role of a slave of Christ. Embrace that as your identity. That's what Paul did. And that's what we should as well. Now... I think this principle applies across the board. Paul was not shy in talking about encouraging other people to follow his own example. Okay, So we all should do this. But I think there is a particular application to church leadership. And I want to talk about that for just a second. It's particularly important for church leadership to understand themselves as a slave of Christ. You see, there's there's always a temptation for church leaders to think of themselves too highly. To make their primary identity their position of leadership. And then they take pride in that position of leadership. And they can use that position of leadership to really elevate themselves above others. But Paul here is a great example of somebody not doing that. Paul has the highest position of leadership that a mere human could have in the church. He's an apostle. None of us here are apostles. And yet, when he relates to the people, he doesn't relate. As an apostle, he relates as a slave of Christ. He takes on the most humbling, demeaning form to relate to them. So, Paul is an example of the attitude that should be in church leaders especially. And not only does Paul give us an example, he gives us a little bit of his expectation for church leaders too. Look at the end of verse 1. Follow along with me. Paul says, To the saints in Christ who are at Philippi, now, notice this part, with the overseers and deacons. Or another way to translate that would be um, the saints in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Now, what does Paul mean here? Okay, We have to think a little bit about this to get some understanding out of it. Um, what he, Paul is basically doing is he is grouping the overseers, which are, by the way, the category for pastor, elder, uh, leader, um, grouping them and the deacons first with the people. So he's, he's putting them in the category of the saints overall first before he separates them out. Well, I'll tell you what the application was for me as I was reading this. I, I always read and try to spiritually grow from the passage that I'm going to preach on it. And I was meditating on this passage recently and, and I imagined what it would be been like if Paul said to the saints at Greenbelt... Including the overseers. And my job here is is as an overseer. And I thought about what the effect that would have on me. And my first thought was, well, I am first identified with the church. Right? My first identity is one of the believers. Only after that is my calling separated out. You see what Paul is doing here. He's linking the overseers with the rest of the church before he separates them out. Now, it doesn't take away from their authority. An overseer is one who oversees. By definition, they have authority in the church. And Paul references them, I think, in particular, because Paul wants to let them know that they have a unique responsibility for seeing that the things in this letter are actually carried out. I think that's why Paul does actually reference them in particular. But before he sections them off, he first includes them as part of the church. I think that's significant. That means that leaders shouldn't think of themselves... Above the members. They should first think of themselves as members of the church before they think of themselves as leading the church. So, you know, particularly those who are leading the church, deacons, Sunday school teachers, deaconesses, is that what you do? Do you understand you're first a member of the church before you're given any leadership or authority in the church? Now, I think we need more leaders in the church. Why do I say that? I say that because this word for overseers, notice that. Look at the word for overseers. Is it singular or plural? It's plural, actually, right? And that means more than one. See, if Paul assumed that there was just one person fulfilling the role of pastor-elder, this would have been the perfect place for him to point it out, you know, to my friend Jim and the deacons and the church. No, he doesn't do that, though. He assumes that there's a plurality. A group of people, men this place, because elders are men, who are leading the church, pastoring the church together. And it's not just here. Every time the word is used in Scripture, it's always plural, which means that Paul is thinking of church leadership as a group thing, not an individual thing. So for us to follow that model, it would mean appointing more people to the role of pastor-elder. That's why I say more people. We need more people. But... What kind of people should we look for in this? Well, we should look for people who first understand themselves as part of the church, men who see themselves first as part of the church, and men who understand their primary identity is as a slave of Christ, humble men, men willing to stoop down to serve others. You know, on on more than one occasion, I've seen people come into a church and and be really, really excited about ways to serve or ways to lead, but not excited at all about being just a member of the church. And for people say, well, God can't call me to just be a member. They aren't happy unless they're leading in some way. And, and they basically despise the role of just a member. But see, honestly, that's the last person you want in a position of church leadership. If that's the person you have in church leadership, they're going to try to draw glory and attention to themselves and, and not Christ. And remember, we're talking about how is Christ the foundation of the church, not just underneath the church, but really part of the life of the church. Well, friends, if you have somebody who's drawing attention to themselves, they're they're going to try to take away that attention from Christ. So how is Christ known and experienced as the life of the church, as the foundation of the church? Well, it's through uh, proper submission to him. When we acknowledge that we are his slave and submit our lives entirely to him, And especially when that's done in the leadership of the church. But the other aspect of this is that we realize our life comes from him. It's not just about what we give to Christ. It's about what we receive from him. And we receive our life from him. And that's what this passage talks about. Look at the second half of verse 1. This is a great passage. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. We're going to try to understand the identity of these people here. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So, the saints are in Christ. Now, what does that mean? Is Christ a box and the saints are inside of him? Is Christ a building and the saints are in him? Well, it's kind of, what does that mean? It's actually abstract. Well, let me uh, mention some other ways we could think about being in something that's not a physical location. Think, you know, someone could say, I am in school. Now, they don't necessarily mean they're in the physical location, right? But they mean they're attending the institution. You know, they're, they're part of it. You could say, an athlete could say, I am in training, right? That means if you offer them a donut, they'll probably refuse, or at least they should if they're a good athlete, right? If they're serious about it. Someone could say, I am in a relationship. What's that mean? Well, that has implications, right? Someone could say, I am in the military. That's very defining, isn't it? See, in all of these, when we're saying we're in something, it means it's the reality in which we live. It, what we are in sets our agenda. It, it really gives us our priorities. It puts limits on what we'll do. So, you know, if you're in the military, well, when they call you, you go. You just do it. The mission must be accomplished. If you're an athlete in training, well, that defines a lot of the hours of your life. If you're in a relationship... It means you're not seeing another person, right? It means when you get a text or email from that person, you, your heart skips a beat, right? All these things are true because of what you are in. When we talk about being in something, we mean the sphere of our existence. Uh, we mean what shapes our lives, what gives direction and energy to our life. That's what we mean, right? So Paul is saying that the Christians are in Christ. What does he mean? He means that Christ shapes our identity. That somehow Christ is the reality in which we live. Christ sets our priorities. Christ defines who we are. Now, How does he do that? Well, we see um, if you're a believer, there's a spiritual connection between you and Christ. Spiritually, you are in him. You have to believe that spiritually, there is a connection between you and Christ. You can't see that. That's the difference between living by faith and living by sight. By faith, you must know that you are connected to Christ. The Bible uses the language of union. You are united to Christ. Now, we see that a little bit here. Notice that Paul says, doesn't just say they're in Christ. Paul says they are saints in Christ. you see that? Well, what does the word saint mean? It means to be a holy one, to be set apart. Because they are in Christ, they are saints in Christ. And their, their identity as a saint because, is because they are in Christ. Christ is holy and set apart. And we, if we're Christians, who are in Christ, are holy and set apart in Christ. Our, our saintness comes from the fact that we are in him. And he gives us his righteousness. He gives us his holiness as a gift by his grace. The same Spirit that was at work in Christ, helping Christ to live a perfect life unto obedience to His Father, is given to us because we are in Him. That's how we are holy and blameless. We are saints in Him. He gives us His righteousness. He gives us His Holy Spirit. Notice also verse 2 here. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Through Christ we have grace. God doesn't count our sins against us because Christ has died for those sins. He has covered our sins. And because of Christ's grace, we can have peace with God. And therefore, God is our Father. You see, outside of Christ, God is your judge. In Christ, God is your Father. Blessings in Christ. In Christ is the most important part about who you are. That's the most important thing you're in. But why is it so hard for in Christ to define our reality? I think it's because we're in other things too. And we see that right here. Right after Paul says they are in Christ, what's the next thing he says? He says they are in Philippi. Now, in English, it usually says at Philippi. But believe me, it's the same Greek word. In in Christ, in Philippi, that's what they are. And their life in Philippi presented a constant um, challenge to their understanding of who they were in Christ. Philippi was a city where there was lots of emperor worship. That meant that they had strong reverence for the emperor in that city. They worshipped him. It would be hard to live as a Christian in Philippi when everybody else was worshipping something different than what you could worship. And like any city, there's much sin and suffering. People were abused. People died. Later, Paul talks about how he had a good friend who almost died and, Paul says if that person had died, he would have had sorrow among sorrow. See, the Bible doesn't tell us that just because we're in Christ, nothing in the world affects us. No, we live in the world too. We're in Christ and in the world. And all the sufferings and trials and blessings of the world uh, come upon us and affect us. But um, Paul would go on to say here how in Christ is more important than being in the world in terms of shaping our reality, it must control how we live. So Paul would say to these people, in Christ must control how they think of being in Philippi. Later, Paul tells them that the work that God began in their lives, God will complete till the end. And that means those who are in Christ will always be in Christ. If you're in Christ, you will always be in Christ. But you will not always be in Greenbelt or wherever you are. No, our our place in this world is temporary. We're just passing through to our ultimate destination forever in Christ. In Christ is eternal. In this world, wherever we happen to live, is temporary. So in Christ must control how we think of and feel about whatever else we're in at the time. Being in whatever place you are in presents unique challenges to your identity in Christ. But in Christ is more true, and it must control how you think about your life in the world. And so, for instance, if you are, and you all are, in America right this t- at this time, and if you happen to be in the government, well, you might have some problems because many of you aren't working and you're not getting paid. And even if you're not, you're in a country where the government is shut down, but that creates some sense of uncertainty, doesn't it? Some confusion, some worry, maybe. But friends, this is where you must know that in Christ is more significant than being in America or working in the government or whatever else you are in. All governments pass away. They all will, except for the kingdom which you are in. And that is eternal. So in Christ must shape how you see everything else that you are in. We must live as those who are in Christ in Greenbelt. Let me close with a personal example of this. Um, of how I tried to apply this to my life several years ago. Now, many years, several years ago, it's about five, seven, eight or so now, um, I had an opportunity to think a lot about what it means to be in Christ. I, I studied that extensively in school. I wrote a long paper on what it means to be united to Christ. I enjoyed thinking about that idea a lot. I loved it. I tried to apply it to my life. But as I'm sure you can understand, there's a big difference between knowing something academically... And then knowing it personally and practically. And and it's much harder to know it that latter way, right? It's much harder to actually live it out than it is to know it in our head. Um, right after I spent a while studying what it means to be in Christ, we went over to Turkey as a family. And uh, we went there. And we were going to be there for a while. We were very excited. I was very excited about taking everything that I learned and trying to share it with the people, letting them know what it meant to be in Christ and to teach and to pastor and to see people come to Christ and to see a church raise up. That's why we we went there. But it didn't happen, (laughs) at least not in the way that I thought it would. Um, I realized that I couldn't learn the language very well, so I couldn't actually talk to people. I couldn't even listen to people. And God had something else he wanted to teach me. And instead of doing all these things that I thought I was made and called to do, no, Instead of that, every aspect of my identity that I liked was being slowly stripped away. Um, the best way to describe it is to tell you the things that were in my book bag, okay? Because you can tell a lot about a person by what is in their bag, right? And, um, you know, if we look through your bag or briefcase or purse, we probably tell something about you. So these are the things that were in my book bag, and you can see how my identity was starting to, in my mind at the time, go downhill. Um before I left for Turkey, I had academic books in my book bag, and I liked that. I liked that identity, and I would drive, ride the train back and forth to school, and I would sometimes have conversations with people based on the books that I was reading. It was a great thing. And then we went for some training before we went overseas and had to put away the academic books. And instead, I had toys for our kids and my kids' books because I was spending a lot of time with them. And, you know, that was... <laughs> That was funny and fun, but I like being a dad, so that identity fit me well, and it worked. Um, I would be glad and proud of those books, too. But then when I got overseas, I realized that I wasn't learning the language the normal way, and that the best thing to do was to actually buy some toys that I could use. And with my language helper, we would play with the toys and talk about them. So I'd drive the car around the tree and talk about it. And I, I had to get some books, and um, I was at the kindergarten reading level. First grade was too advanced for me. So, you know, I had my kindergarten level books and my toys, like I did before, but they weren't for my kids, they were for me. And uh, that was a little embarrassing when I would ride on the bus and keep my bag closed. No one's going to see those books. You know, oh, what are you reading? You're reading uh, War and Peace. Oh, I'm reading, um, you know, The the Elephant Goes to the Doctor. Um, A little bit humbling in my mind. Um, That was a book that I did read, by the way. But then it got worse. You see, our family got terribly sick with parasites, and um, I was constantly taking stool samples to the doctor. So my life was taking stool samples back and forth on the bus. That was what was in my bag. That was the low point. And now everything about my identity is being stripped away, right? Everything I liked about who I was in America... You're never going to look at me the same right after that story... (laughs) everything I liked about being in America was being stripped away because I was in Turkey. Um, And the question in my mind then was, does being in Christ really define me? See, I knew from what I studied, um, if what I spent so much time thinking about and writing about in Christ, if if that was true, then this stripping away would not create an identity crisis. It could not, by definition, create an identity crisis because what was most true of me and most important about me, namely being in Christ, was still true even if I was in Turkey and having all these things happen. And then I'd still be able to live out my identity in Christ. And I could do that whether I was in America and in school or in Turkey and sick in bed, which was a lot. The fundamental identity hasn't changed. I knew that in my head. But it was an entirely different thing living it out. And let me tell you, just repeating to yourself, I am in Christ, so that defines me. Well, that doesn't fix everything. You have to fight for it. And there were many times when I had to look at the circumstances and think to myself, this doesn't define me. I had to tell myself, grace and peace in Christ is better than anything else. And I have that, and I can take joy in that. And even if that's the only joy I have right now, I had to realize some hard truths. I realized that a lot of what I thought uh, was, sorry, I realized that a lot of what I thought was me enjoying Christ was really just me enjoying the way serving Christ made me feel. And there's a big difference between those two. You see that? And see, so my encouragement to you is whether you are in love, or in the midst of a divorce, or in debt, or living in your dream home, none of that defines who you are. Christ defines who you are. You are in him. You are his slave. You draw strength from him. You obey him. And that is who you are, no matter where you, where you are and what you do. Now, eventually, God changed my circumstances. I like what's in my bag now, okay? But even that doesn't change my fundamental identity. See, you'll all be really scared to go in my back. Right? Um, <laughs> that, but see, having it then go rightly for you doesn't change your fundamental identity. And it's my experience that it's not in trials when you have a hard time finding your identity in Christ. It's actually in the good times. Trials make it easier because they strip things away. It's rather when everything's going well and people are telling you, good job, you're made for this, this is fantastic, you're doing wonderful. That's when it's hard to find your identity in Christ. Um, I shared this idea of identity in Christ with somebody one time, and she basically said, well, thanks, but I don't really need that. I'm actually successful. It's going well for me on my own. I don't don't need that truth. I thought to myself, oh, no, you need it more than you realize. The problem is you can't see it. Friends, do you? Do you see it? The reality is that we have no identity outside of Christ. We'll see that later in the book of Philippians when Paul talks about if we boast in anything outside of Christ, it is not our glory, it's our shame. Anything that we take pride in outside of Christ doesn't count for us, it counts against us. Christ is our foundation. And we'll experience him that way when we find our identity in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth that we see in your word. We pray that your word, as it is spoken and as it is explained, will have a transforming effect on our lives. We pray that we will understand who we are in you. And that will shape us. That will change us. We will rest in you, and we will become eager and willing to do whatever you call us to do. And we pray this in Christ's name.